Hello, and welcome to Marathon Swim Stories, where we connect with marathon swimmers around the world to find out how they got started, what makes them tick, and why they keep going. It's where we explore the human side of the superhuman feats of endurance swimmers, the connections that we have with each other, our support crew, and the waters we cross. If you've ever stood at the edge of a body of water and wondered what it would be like to swim to the other side, you're in good company. I'm Shannon Keegan, marathon swimmer, water relationship coach, and founder of Intrepid Water, where I virtually teach swimming freedom. Freedom to get started, shed the confines of the pool, or your preconceived notions of what's possible. Find out more at intrepidwater.com. I'm honored that marathon swimmers around the world will take time out of their day to sit down and talk to little old me. And today, it was my absolute privilege to spend an hour with world record holder. And that's not just one world record. Vicki Keith holds 16 world records. I recommend you set aside the time to read through Vicky's accomplishments. Maybe you heard of the summer of 1988 when she swam across all five of the Great Lakes within 61 days. Or perhaps you've heard of one of her many butterfly crossings, including the English Channel and the Strait of Juan de Fuca. But these are just the tip of the iceberg. Just pause for a minute and take stock. As a child who paged through the Guinness Book of World Records myself, I'm particularly taken by Vicky's drive to follow through. I remember contemplating an attempt of the longest continuous tread, like treading water, that drill we used to have to do in swim practice. I remember even envisioning what it would be like to stay at the pool after everyone else had gone home. I was probably 12 or 13. But somewhere along the line, my hopes were dashed, or I didn't push hard enough. After talking with Vicki Keith, I'm completely inspired to at least, as she recommends, make yourself uncomfortable every single week. I hope our conversation moves you to action. Enjoy. Hello. Vicki, thank you so much for being my guest today on Marathon Swim Stories. I'm flushed and sweating and <laughs> nervous to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I usually start out by asking people about their swim story, and I'm not sure our listeners have familiarity with your story, but I think we'll come around to it. But I really wanted to start today by asking about your relationship with the water. I think my relationship with water started when I was very young. I was born in Winnipeg and uh, we had a cottage on Lake Winnipeg. And so there's pictures of me in the sand with my older brother and my grandma and this very shallow beach where you could walk out forever. And so just a feeling of freedom and safety. For me, that became just a fun, playful place to be, a a place where, where you could be at peace a place where you were surrounded by nature. So I think that all of that played into my wanting to be in the water. 
Now, my relationship over water has changed. It became a, a place where I could problem solve. It became a place where I could uh, contemplate. I remember the first time that I went into uh, an open water swim, I realized I had to swim at night. And so it also became a scary place. And I remember as a young person, but then it came back to me as my first night swim of just that image of that hand reaching up and grabbing my ankle and pulling me down. And so there was this feeling of unease about it as well. And and just being able to play with all of it and find peace. And when I went to my first time of doing a night swim, I had a whole bunch of friends with me. We decided we were going to swim out to a buoy, turn around and come back again. And I remember sprinting to that buoy, not actually even touching it because I could imagine that hand and turning around and sprinting back. And that was my only night swim before I got in the water to swim a double crossing of Lake Ontario. And so I wasn't sure how I was going to manage it. What I found was when the when it, it just slowly got dark and the sun quietly set, that it was back to that feeling of peace and just being able to appreciate being alone in the water and seeing the moon above. And we had a full moon that at that time. So being able to find that comfort again and that naturalness again, but but there's still that thought of that hand. Yeah, right. I appreciate that so much. This is a person who... I had to overcome a lot of water fear. I didn't grow up like on a lakeside or anything. So I had to really find my courage to swim in open water. And there's so many people that are afraid of the water and the seaweed. And I've worked with a number of athletes who the, the greatest fear, Marilyn Bell was terrified of the seaweed. And I've worked with athletes like that. And one of the things I tell them is seaweed is broccoli. And it's really silly to be afraid of broccoli. <laughs> right. But it's just a plant, but just that feeling and that and the, the, whatever it's hiding down there, you don't know what's down there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I know that there's so much that people can find that's fearful, but if you can just find the peace and the beauty in it, that it's something, uh, I mean, this is my happy place. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I remember communing with the seaweed once. I had a friend who had this um, very long stretch of uh, when I lived in Vermont 10 years ago. And this very long stretch of their shoreline that was really shallow and easy to wade into, but then it turned into this just like tons of seaweed. And there was a day where I was just like, I'm just going to get over this. And it's like, I can't stand being freaked out by it anymore. And I just kind of floated over the seaweed. And then you see these fish in there just like nibbling at the seaweed. And you're like, wow. Oh, so there's a whole ecosystem here. Like, <laughs> this is something, and I can just sit here and observe it. And it's kind of beautiful. And go down with the waterproof camera and see what you can find that's interesting. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's a place of beauty. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How do you think we decide, though? So I just mentioned that I decided to commune with this fear. And you kind of mentioned that too with deciding to go swim out to a buoy because you knew you wanted to see what it would be like in the dark. Why do, how do we decide? like tackle a fear like that is to take a special kind of person or do you think anybody can like I think anybody can I think that a lot of the time we we try and find comfort right and I think that one of the things we have to do is be aware that we have to make ourselves uncomfortable and not just on a on a random moment but we have to consciously do something that makes us uncomfortable every single week with just one thing and it can be a big thing it could be a little thing but just do something that's out of your comfort zone and remind yourself that that's how we grow. Because what happens otherwise is we have this box we live in and that box gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And by the time we're 80 years old, the only safe place is on a rocking chair on our front deck. 
And that's not where I want to be when I'm 80. I mean, my goal, I want to reach 132. Yes. If I'm on a rock, in a rocking chair on a deck on 80, I've got a long time to spend there. So I just want to keep my world as big as possible. I appreciate that so much. How did you pick 132? (laughs) Oh, it's a silly story. (laughs) The meaning of life from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is 42. I knew nothing about that. My brothers cared immensely about it. And so my favorite thing as a sister was to say they made a mathematical error. They forgot to subtract 10. It's 32. So then 32 became uh, one of the numbers that has meaning in my life just because it bothered the heck out of my brothers. I love that. I love that so much. That's great. Okay, so you mentioned freedom, and I have this whole, my whole new, like swimming freedom is my new thing that I'm trying to help people find, is swimming freedom. And you mentioned when you're on that shore in Winnipeg growing up that you felt free there. When did you f- find comfort in the water and safety? Were you, have you always felt safe and comfortable in the water? I think I was always safe and comfortable in the water. And I don't think I even at that age understood what freedom was. I think I found it, but I didn't know what it was. I think the first time that I identified water and freedom together was 10 years old at the YMCA in Ottawa. And I was volunteering and I was asked to be responsible. Swimming lessons were like 30 kids in a class at that point. And there was one young child with a disability. And I was asked to just keep an eye on this one child. So I remember supporting this child and the way his eyes lit up and the smile on his face when he got in the water, because water to him was freedom. And I think at 10 years old, I identified that water was an incredible place because it was a place where this young person was free to move independently on land. They used a wheelchair, but on the water, they were free. And I think that at that moment I understood it. And then I related it to things past and present and future from there. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it is such a place freedom for somebody with a disability. What an amazing honor to have, like to be able to help that individual at 10. That's where my passion grew to be able to make a positive impact in people's lives and specifically working with people with disabilities. It all started with my mother's foresight in getting us involved in volunteerism and then my passion for the water. Yeah, that's beautiful. Do you think that that's kind of the first spark of what became an amazing coaching and mentoring career? Do you think it started at that point at 10? Absolutely. I loved being able to make a positive impact. My family, my parents felt it was really important that we gave back in many different ways in our, in our community. And so it just became important to me. I started volunteering when I was 10 and that became a path throughout my life. I remember at the age of 16, volunteering with a young boy who was autistic. And of course I brought him into the water and I was holding him there and he reached out and put his hand on my cheek and said, And that was my name. That became my name. But water to him was something special also. And in that moment, he saw me for the first time. And we developed this incredible relationship because he felt safe enough to reach out to me at that moment. That's amazing. That's amazing. Okay, so take us to some of your swimming stories. I've heard you say that you woke up did <laughs> you correct me if I'm wrong? Woke up one night with this idea of marathon swimming and you like pull up the Guinness Book of World Records. Where'd you first even heard of the Guinness Book of World Records to know that it was something to try to beat? Or and why did you why do you think you were so compelled to push 
limits? I think we all owned a Guinness Book of World Records at some point. And it wasn't swimming focused for me. It was just the concept of doing something that nobody else could do. And I think that inspires a lot of us. And that's what the Guinness Book did, right? But then when I, I woke up in the middle of the night and I'd been doing all sorts of sports, I loved to swim. I wasn't very good at it. I, I technically was, was sound and I swam on a swim team, but I didn't have the ability to be a fast swimmer. I loved um, long distance running, cross country running. I did downhill ski. I did all sorts of activities, but none of them really well. I actually bought my first trophy because I wanted one so badly. And then the second trophy was a most improved person. So this was part of my path of figuring out who I was and what I wanted. And so I was lying in bed, sound asleep, and my brain came, put two sports together, swimming and long distance running. And so it came up with this long distance swimming. And I woke up with a start and I knew immediately that that was intriguing. And I got up out of bed and I pulled my Guinness Book of World Records off the shelf and I turned past swimming records and found long distance swimming, open water swimming. And there was all sorts of records there. And I started to imagine then that that's where I could go. And I read the records over and over and over all night long. And I woke up the next morning and I knew what I was going to do. And I went to school that day and I said, someday I'm going to be a great marathon swimmer. Now, at that point, I also, and still am in some respects, a great procrastinator. I think if you're really good at something, you should practice it. And I am a great procrastinator. And so I procrastinated for a long time. And truly what it was is I just didn't know how to start. I had no idea what the first step was. And it just confused me. And one person came up to me and said, Vicki, I've heard you talking about this many times. It's time for you to shut up and do it. And I said, okay, I'll do it next summer and I'll do this. And he says, no, get in the water, get busy and do it. And within three months, I'd set two world records. I'd swum 12 miles butterfly along the shoreline in Kingston. And I'd swum for a hundred hours continuously in a pool. Both those records I had found in the Guinness book. Those were the two that inspired me the most. And then it started to build from there. I went from swimming 12 miles butterfly to 80.2, 80.2, so just under 50 miles butterfly in my swimming career. The 12 miles butterfly turned out to be a female world record. When I first came up with the idea, I didn't see any line between male and female. I just saw records. And so I set out to do 10 miles butterfly because the world record done by the Di Donato twins was 10 miles. But then I found out that they had gone further than that. But we had no record of that. There was no internet to look things up. So um, when I did the 12 miles butterfly, I found out two thirds of the way through that it was actually only good, only going to be a female world record. But by the time my swimming career was over, the world records that I had set were mostly overall world records with a few female world records just to spice things up. <laughs> I love that. Tell us how you decided that you don't believe in the world impossible. I think I really struggled with people putting limitations on others. And I don't know exactly where it started, but I know that my mother used to share stories with me. And two of the books that she read to me over and over again was Helen Keller's story and Florence Nightingale's story. And Florence Nightingale was the woman that invented nursing. So I think that for me, I really struggled with why these people were told things were impossible right from the very beginning. I mean, Helen Keller, they saw it 
no possibility in her because of the limitation, their perceived limitations. And she turned out to be this incredibly powerful woman. And then uh, Florence Nightingale, who there was this woman who didn't even belong in the world that she was in because it was a men's world. And she stepped forward as, as a very strong woman and showed what compassion can do. It wasn't, take caring for somebody wasn't just medically, physically providing what they physically needed, but to give compassion and caring. And all of these things spoke to me about who I wanted to be in my life. And I think that that was, you know, there are no limitations. You can achieve anything you want and compassion and caring have to be a big part of your world. Yeah, that's amazing. I just love that. You talk about creating your own reality. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I think it's beautiful. Um, yeah, I, and I wasn't even really aware that I was doing it at the time. These are terms that I came up with afterwards as I sort of figured out how I had been so successful. And creating my own reality came from the beginning of the 100-hour continuous swim. And how do I get myself ready for that? Well, physically, I can swim and get ready for that. Because if you can swim for 12 hours, you can swim for 24 hours, you can swim for 48 hours, you can swim for, like, it just grows, right? So it was, how do I get myself emotionally ready? I made a bathing cap and I put a logo on it. I made my own logo. I had t-shirts made up and I sold t-shirts and all the money that we made from the t-shirts would go to raise money for the charity at that moment. It was making it real in my own brain. I took a map of the Great Lakes and I nailed it to my living room wall when I was ready to swim across the five Great Lakes. And I took a magic marker and I drew a line across each one of the Great Lakes. And I stood back and I looked at the map and I said, I can do this. And every single morning and every single night and any time I walked past my living room, I'd stop and I'd look at the map and I'd say, I can do this. And I took pictures of people being successful. I took favorite quotes and I surrounded it was framed by all of these things that I found to be positive images. And again, I'd look at it and go, I can do this. And what happened was I started to believe that something was possible that everybody else, all the experts believed was impossible. And it was just talking to myself repeating to myself, sitting in a lifeguard chair as a young person saying over and over and over again, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, putting it to music, just making any environment as a positive environment and an environment where I believed what I was about to achieve was possible and blocking out the sounds of the negative voices. So it's just create what you believe can happen. Yeah. And I was going to try to ask, like, how do you keep the negativity out? But I think you just said it. It's not always easy. There are times where it's really easy. When everything is going right, it's really easy to believe that it's possible. But when things start to go wrong, that's when things become challenging. When I was unsuccessful at my crossing of the Catalina Channel, and two weeks later, I had to get in the Juan de Fuca, water temperature ranging between 7 and 10 degrees Celsius, life expectancy an hour and a half. And I had to go from a complete negative situation, a complete positive situation, I needed to block anything out negative. So I had to block out not only the sounds in my head, but the experts in the media saying this can't be done. The expert describing my body as blubber. And if this was possible, that it was because I was closer to a whale than a human and that I had this blubber that would protect me. I had to be able to find a way to block things out. And 
as a kid, we go la, 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 and ignore it all. And that's practically what I did is if there were people in my environment that believed in the possibilities of what I was doing, I drew them in. And if there was people who didn't believe it was possible or who had a negative vibe, I pushed them away. And it was one of the most difficult times in my life because I'm not somebody to push people away. I tend to want to welcome people in, but I was in a horrible situation. I didn't know how to fix it. And the only thing I could do in that moment in time was to leave the people behind that weren't supporting the concept or even questioning the concept and just drawing those people towards me. One of my most life-altering lessons came in the middle of an unsuccessful swim. My goal was to swim 80 kilometers butterfly. I got in the water. I was swimming from Oswego, New York to Kingston, Ontario. By the time we got out of the harbor, the waves had lifted to about three meter swells with a chop on top. Almost instantly as we pulled out of the harbor, the crew members were violently seasick and I'm swimming along. The kayaks beside me is having problems staying beside me. Uh, Night hits. I'm being tossed and turned all over the place. I remember at one point being thrown underwater, upside down, vomiting underwater, not sure which way was up having enough air just to blow a couple of bubbles so I could follow them to the surface and then getting my next breath of air. And at that moment in time, trying to figure out how do I solve all of this? I remember stopping and saying, I need to know what's going on. I need to know, have information and them sharing it with me and realizing that if I made a decision right at that moment in time that I would never forgive myself. It was the wrong decision. Never make a life altering decision when you're at your emotional lowest. And at that moment in time, I understood that so completely that I put my face back in the water when they told me that there was no way I was going to be successful. And I swam butterfly in those waves for another four hours being thrown around vomiting underwater until the sun rose. And when the sun rose, there was an awakening. There was an understanding that I could continue, but this wasn't the time. Never make a life-altering decision when you're at your emotional lowest. At that point, I was able to call my crew member over. I called my husband over. I said, I need to have all the information I can. And at that moment in time, I made the decision to get out of the water. But I didn't make that decision in a negative environment. I made it in a positive environment. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to continue to swim right now. You guys go get the things arranged that you need to because they needed blankets, they needed towels, they needed to get me into the boat. And so they arranged that and I spam for another 10 minutes while they arranged it going, how do I fix this? How do I turn this into a positive environment? And what happened was I decided that I was going to do it again. I was going to change the route. So my boaters were safer. I was going to, it was going to be a shoreline route, but that I was going to swim that 80 kilometers butterfly. And in less than a week, I was back in the water, 64 hours and 10 minutes of swimming, 80.2 kilometers butterfly, because I was able to find the positive in that. But one of the most fun stories in all of that was when I was pulled out of the water during the first attempt at that swim, one of my young swimmers was on the radio. They said to her while she was on the radio, Vicky was just pulled out of the water. And this 11-year-old girl said, Well, she must have had a really good reason to do that, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's all of these little pieces together, but also 
I'd shared enough with her of my passion that she understood that there was going to be a reason and a positive reason for it if I was pulled out. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love too that being in that really tough spot, being able to like find a problem to solve, I can appreciate that a lot. Just in my own, like trying to get through some merit, like I guess having done marathon swims, I think I'm only up to like 15 hours, <laughs> but it's like you get to these places where you're, you get bored, right? <laughs> so, but, but trying to find a problem to solve can really keep you going. There's a lot of things. And I actually have my athletes that I coach uh, sit down and write a list of the things they could do when things aren't going the way they want it. Not necessarily when they're bored, but when things aren't going. So it's talking to yourself. It's saying positive things to yourself. It's finding that tune. Uh, some of them have a, a range of songs, but also saying, I'm not going to sing for the first 12 hours. Having goals, the first feeding, you know, working towards that. On the 80 kilometer butterfly swim, I actually had a list of people who I was swimming for from my swim team. And every half hour, it switched. So at my emotional lowest, I could say, it's Chad's half hour. Chad would be really, really upset with me if I gave up during his half hour. So I have to swim for another half hour. And that half hour was enough to be put myself in a different place because we're all on this roller coaster ride. If we're in a body of water just through life during the pandemic, we are on roller coaster rides. And if we just wait long enough, we'll start back up the curve. As a listener of Marathon Swim Stories, I suspect that you're comfortable and confident in the water. But perhaps there's someone in your life who feels held back. Fear can manifest in many ways. It may limit our time in the water, where we swim, what time of day, what temperature, or what time of year. If you, or someone you know, feels limited in what they can do in the water, please reach out to me. Shannon at intrepidwater.com. Yeah, like charity swims and things like that. There was somebody who told me they did like a, every mile, they would have somebody donate to a specific mile. And then at their feed, the person would tell them the mile. And I, I just, just kind of like what you said about having a person to think of for a whole feed. I just love that. And fundraising with open water swims wasn't a thing when I started. I like to think that I had something to do with people realizing that there was more to this. Open water swimming inspires people and endurance events inspires people more than a sprint event in a lot of situations. So Terry Fox, Rick Hansen started something special. And, and I feel like I was able to bring it to the open water swimming world in such a way that others realized this was possible as well. During the Great Lakes summer, I was able to raise over $548,000 for programs for kids with disabilities. Throughout the rest of the, my swimming career, I was able to bring that up to over a million dollars. And when people say, what is your greatest accomplishment? It's not a single open water swim. It's the messages that I've been able to bring to young people or the money that I've been able to raise to support programs for kids with disabilities. The swims were the tool in which to do something positive in my world. Yeah, I love that. The thing that just cropped up in my mind is like, how do you get past the fear of it, of not raising any money? So I've thought about doing a, a swim to raise money to build a pool around here. There's, there's a but simple answer to that. Don't set a goal. Don't set a goal. Just say, this is my passion. 
This is incredibly important to me. And if you support what I'm doing, or if you support the charity that I'm raising money for, then all I ask is that you put a little bit into it. And you can do that by sharing this message. Mm -hmm. You can do this by being part of my venture, or you can do this by fundraising because not everybody can donate, but everybody can make a difference. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. (laughs) Can you tell us how you met your husband? Ah, yeah. I actually, I was uh, at an event being awarded something and he was assigned to take care of me. And during that whole event, we were on a number of different vessels. And one of them was the Blue Nose 2. And so this was actually where we met was on the Blue Nose 2. And then he was asked to make sure that I got to the different places during that whole event. So he was the person that directed me. We really hit it off. And about a month or two months after the whole event, he made contact with me. It turned out we worked about two blocks apart (laughs) in downtown Toronto. And he made contact with me and he said, you know, I feel like we had something really powerful and in common. Would you be interested in getting to know each other? And it was Yeah. Yeah. I had a similar feeling. John was a police officer with the Toronto Police Service. So it was just a connection. Uh, John and I, we knew each other for 30 years. Uh, We were married for 26. Just before our 25th wedding anniversary, uh, about three months before, two months before COVID hit, John was diagnosed with a rapid decline dementia. And Uh, In the January, the year or the December, the year before, they said there's something going on. They called it Parkinsonism. In January, it it was identified as the rapid decline dementia. In February, he was no longer able to do stairs and we had to move out of our home and into an apartment building. And by December that year, he had passed away. So we were dealing with covid And this decline in a very short period of time, we managed to sell the house two weeks before COVID hit, but then we weren't able to close because that family wasn't able to sell their house. So there was all sorts of challenges. At the end of February, he said to me, I can't do stairs any longer. And I dragged our mattress down the stairs and set it up in the den. The next morning, I went to a swim meet. I recruited two families. In the afternoon, I packed the house, about 85, 90% of the house. And this, uh, the Sunday morning, those two families that I recruited came and we, we moved the boxes into a truck and moved that day. So I packed 80%, 85% of the house in an afternoon, evening and had company for dinner. And I think that all of that is related to my ability to hyper-focus And that's related to my open water swimming career is just get the job done now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. It was, it was a devastating time for those who aren't on my Facebook. I've, I've spent the last year and a half sharing my grieving process uh, because I haven't had contact with people. Right. And so I wasn't sure how to grieve. Um, None of us are, but I knew I couldn't grieve alone. So my process was to share my journey uh, through the last year and a half to help other people through the process, as well as to to share what it was like for me, because that was my way of my way of communicating. Yeah, 
Yes, very much so. Can you, I believe people, you know, they live on through our memories of them. Can you tell us some stories about John when he was supporting you? So now you're going to make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) So John and I, we had a really strong relationship. He was an athlete when I met him and he was um, somebody that was very involved in charity when I met him, but he had never done something exceptional in sport and had this heart to want to do something. He started wanting to, by wanting to run a marathon. And so we were training together to do that. We were involved at Friday village at the time. And, and so we were volunteering and uh, he decided that he was going to help a young man, Carlos Costa, a double leg amputee, learn how to rollerblade. So Carlos went down, John went with them, twisted his knee, his, his marathon swimming or running career was done. So he said, well, if I can't do a marathon run, will you teach me how to do a marathon swim? And I said, sure. And I trained him for a year, but there wasn't a real desire in him to change what he was doing in regard to technique just to do the swim. And so I worked within his comfort level and I got his his endurance level up and he swam 50 of the 52 kilometers of Lake Ontario and had to be pulled out of the water with a major injury to his shoulder. He had actually bled into his bicep. There was a triangle of bruising in his arm. And when we pulled him out of the water, two or three kilometers from shore, he was in excruciating pain. And when he went to see the doctor, they said, this is going to require surgery. And we sort of looked at each other and said, let's see what we can do with rest and recovery. And so a year later, it had healed on its own. He didn't require surgery. And he says, but I really want this. And I said, okay, here's the thing. If you want to do this, you have to do it my way. You have to understand that we're going to go back to floating and we're going to start building from there. And it's very hard for a husband-wife relationship for him to totally say, I'm going to do exactly what you say all the time. And so that's where we went. And I took him back to floating. I taught him how to float. And we relearned how to swim right from that position. And we got him to the point that he had a much more comfortable stroke. It was was more controlled. He got in the water for a crossing in in the Kingston area. And three quarters of the way across, he started to feel that tightness and that pain again. And he told me because he knew that he could trust me and that we could come up with a solution together. And I said, I want you to do dog paddle until I tell you to stop. And he said, dog paddle? (laughs) And I said, I want you to do dog paddle. And he said, okay. And he started doing long arm dog paddle. It was one of the drills we worked on stretching out. And what happened was all of the muscles started to loosen and he was able to come back to the stroke that he had originally had and stretch it out. And he was able to complete that swim. And he raised, I'm going to forget the number. I think about $80,000. We were able to buy 12 sport wheelchairs for the YMCA in Kingston. And that was his gift to the young people to be able, because it had always been his idea to give back as well. So that was, that was the epitome of team to be able to work together that closely, that strongly, that much confidence and trust in each other. That was a building point in our relationship 
And everything we continue to do from that point forward was based on that and that understanding that we could do anything together. So we were we were sort of seen as a power couple that whatever we decided we were going to do, we were going to do it together with respect, with love, with compassion, and we would be successful. That's so beautiful. I just love, 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 love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. And you guys did a tandem together, yeah, in 2000? We did. Yeah. That was earlier than that open water swim. He wanted to do something and we wanted to do something together. I decided that I wanted to um, to start a swim team in Kingston for pro- a program for kids with disabilities. He wanted to do something to support that. So we decided we would do a tandem swim across Lake Ontario. It wasn't a really long swim. I think it was, I'm going to guess this wrong. It was about 32 kilometers. Not and we swim. <laughs> well, all things balanced. Yeah, right, right. Um, and we, so we trained, we planned. John was a strong athlete. He was a capable swimmer. And so we started the swim together and about a quarter of the way in, he started to feel really nauseous. And so for about half the swim, I swam head up breaststroke beside him, sometimes talking to him, encouraging him, sometimes talking to the crew and slowly his stomach settled and we were able to complete the swim together. And we raised a small amount of money on that swim, but we raised awareness for the program that I wanted to build. And that was his first taste in open water swimming. And I think that that really whetted his appetite and to help them really understand that there was still this desire to do something special. And that's when he ended up, he ended up becoming the oldest person to swim Lake Erie and the oldest person and the longest single crossing of Lake Ontario, oldest man, longest single crossing of Lake Ontario. And he, he raised money during doing all of that. So he was able to leave a huge legacy not just in in the funds raised, the wheelchairs purchased, but again, in this understanding that anything is possible and age isn't a restriction and and just believing is enough. I love that. I love that. You'd mentioned about your husband. I've experienced this with clients as well, that like, they're not willing to like, maybe start over with their technique. They just want to bust out yards. How do you, how do you kind of coach somebody to come back to, whether they need to start with floating or, but, but basically to come back to like, really like the technique to me is so important if we're going for longer distances, like we don't want to get injured or burned out before we even start swimming. So how do you kind of work with a client to encourage them to embrace the need to really focus on technique? I think it's how you bring it to them. I think that you have to say it with complete conviction and confidence that if they want to be successful in their goals, this is the process that they are going to have to follow. And I think that it's important that everybody have goals, no matter what that challenge is, and then you have to follow the process. There are a number of different ways to get there. So you might be that you take three steps towards that goal and realize that there's two paths and you can have a conversation on which of those two paths you're going to take. One may be a little bit more focused on technique and one may be a little bit more focused on on endurance, perhaps, but they're going to weave themselves together again at a later date. So it might be, 
I think right now we're going to work on endurance because I think that you need more strength before we can take the next step in your, in your technique, or it might be, you're not ready for endurance yet. Let's focus on your technique and get the step and then move back in towards endurance. And then you come to another crossroads and you say, these are the three steps that, that are possible, which are the ones that make the most sense. Um, you said you wanted to swim across a lake. I'm going to bring in Ashley Cowan at this point. And Ashley Cowan was an athlete that wanted came to me. She wanted to swim across the lake, just like I had. Ashley Cowan was um, an eight-year-old little girl who was, uh, was born able-bodied, but due to meningitis, had lost all four limbs at her main joint. So she came onto my pool deck wanting to swim across the lake. And I'm looking at this little girl going, how is that possible? But knowing that nothing is impossible. So, so saying, okay, let's, let's see what you can do and getting, watching her get in the pool and be able to swim half the length of the pool and not being able to go any further than that and saying, okay, so here's the next path. I'm going to put you in a group of athletes that are a similar level to you and you can work with them until you are able to do more and are coming back to me in two weeks saying, what do I do to swim in your group? And I've told you this is the path. And so when you consume eight lengths of pool continuously without stopping with flip turns, then you consume my group. Well, fine, she says. And she dives in and she swims eight lengths of the pool. Can I swim in your group? Yes. And we continue on the journey. And at a point we hit a crossroads, uh, Paralympic journey or open water swimming journey. Well, the Paralympic journey made sense. This seemed like the path. And so we trained and she got, she qualified for nationals when she was nine years old. And by the time she was 10, she was competing at the national competitions and the Paralympic trials comes up and she missed the standards by two tenths of a second. And she's angry and frustrated. Well, Ashley, we're on this, this path. Why did you come to me? Well, because I wanted to swim across a great lake. Do you think it's time? Yes. So then we choose the lake. There's five lakes right there. What makes the most sense? This is a young girl who has four amputations. In a classification system, she was an S4, SB3, which is a lower classification. Lake Erie's 20 kilometers. That's a fair challenge. And so we decided she was going to do that. We trained for a year. One of the things I did differently, because you always have to think outside the box, is we stayed in uh, Buffalo the night before the swim, because we didn't know which side of the lake we were going to start on, because we didn't know which direction the wind was going to be. And if you're getting in the water with a young girl with that level of disability, you have to give her some possibilities. So we woke up in the morning, we saw which way the wind was blowing, we went to that shore, and we swam across. And it was, um, I think it was a 14 hour swim. But she was able to be successful. When she started the swim, nobody believed it was possible. The media didn't show up. I had one friend who was a media person. I said, you've got to come to the beginning. We had three people there that were outside of our crew. And by the end, there were hundreds of people on shore. And her story went around the world as uh, this incredible story. She would receive emails from all over the place going, I just had a child who uh, was born with a disability and you've given me huge hope and just again, making this positive impact in the lives of others. And Ashley um, was, was able to change the way people saw disability just in her taking on that one challenge. Ashley now is a mom of three young 
children, uh, two girls and a boy. So she's gone on to achieve what's important to her in her life. But she has this little tattoo on her shoulder to remind her a shooting star. The star was her goal and the lines leading away from it were all the steps she took to achieve that goal. And it was also the one thing she said to her mother because her mother had told her she couldn't have a tattoo. And she said, but if I swim across Lake Erie, can I have a tattoo? And her mother said, yeah. <laughs> so she got her tattoo. I love that. Thank you. That's a wonderful story. I do want to wrap up a little bit here, but I have some just kind of questions, kind of standard questions. What swim are you most proud of? That's a hard one. So the Great Lakes, we raised $548,000. The Juan de Fuca, going from the most challenging swim to one of the most challenging swims and being successful at it, facing the, the fears in that one. And 80.2 kilometers butterfly just because. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, wow. Um, what's the most beautiful place that you've ever swam? Peace. I think in every body of water, there's that moment where you can just be. I think even now, when I jump into Lake Ontario at sunset and just roll over on my back, and look up at the sky and watch some a bird fly past and the clouds move. And my ears are underwater. I think in any body of water, being able to find that piece is what's important. What advice would you give to an aspiring marathon swimmer? Don't take three years to procrastinate before you get in. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, 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 think, I think trust yourself. Believe that it's possible. Uh, especially the people who are aspiring to things that have never been done, right? Go for it anyway. Somebody's going to say to you, do something that's being done first. There is no requirement to do that. Believe in the impossible and get busy and do it. Who's inspired you? Florence Nightingale, um, Helen Keller, um, my grandmother, who was a single parent before they even knew what a single parent was. Um, my parents who believed in giving back to our community, uh, the young people that I work with every single day. How do you want to be remembered? Wow. After my 132 years, (laughs) (laughs) I think just the children of the children that I coach, having one message that has been shared with them so that I know that I made a positive impact on the earth. I don't think I need to be remembered. I think that the message that I've been been able to share, it's more important that those messages are shared. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard it before said that like the, that it's like the tendrils like radiating out from you that you share those positive messages and they're, they're like pushed forward. It's like the kind of the pay it forward. Or the ripples in the wave from a single drop of water. There we go. There we go. And the last question, how do we bring more people to the water? I think we raise awareness of safety. I think that when people feel safer around the water, we will have more people around the water by providing swimming opportunities to young people who wouldn't otherwise have that opportunity. I think that that's how we do it. We make parents understand that their children are safe. I live on an island and a lot of the young people on the island didn't learn how to swim because their parents didn't bring them to the shore because their parents were afraid. And the water can be a scary place if you haven't had that opportunity. So bringing, bringing people to the water is so that they, are, they feel safe and they understand that they can be safe in the water. 
Thank you, Vicki, so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. Not at all. This has been fun. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you were inspired by even just a moment of this story, please share it with a friend. You never know what might push someone out of their comfort zone so that they can find out what they're capable of. And please leave a review with your podcast provider. It truly helps others discover the raw and honest stories of these amazing endurance swimmers. Thanks for listening.